This is Murder Scotland, a podcast that looks at famous and not so famous murders that happened in Scotland or were committed by people with a connection to Scotland. We'll just see how tenuous we can get. My name is Julie Lamont. Me and my co-host Alan Nicholl will look at these crimes with 21st century eyes and discuss, are they really what we thought they were? Hello and welcome to Murder Scotland. This is a wee short bonus episode for you today. This one is around the Howard Wilson gang, which Archie McGeehy drove for. Um, this was recorded out of sequence from the way you've heard it. So at this point, I didn't know where Alan was going with his theory that Archie McGeehy was potentially um, one of the murderers that committed one of the Bible John murders. So you might grasp that from the way that we're talking to each other, but um, I think it's still a really interesting story. So we thought it was definitely worthwhile putting out as a bonus episode. This week, I want to talk about um, what came to be known as the Howard Wilson gang. Um, I think Wilson was about 19 when he joined the City of Glasgow Police in 1958. He fully expected to rise through the ranks rapidly. Um, He'd been at a top fee-paying school in Glasgow and was ambitious, but despite that having several commendations from the force, um, he failed to gain promotion and he lasted 10 years in the police uh, and then decided that he would resign. He set up a greengrocer's shop in Glasgow's south side and he quickly hit financial difficulties and being a married man with a young family Um, He looked for an easy way out. Perhaps surprisingly, he chose an unusual way out of his difficulties. Surprising for a well-educated ex-policeman, that is. Being a member of Bears Den Gun Club, he had a fascination with weapons, as did two other members, Ian Donaldson and John Sim. Bears Den had a bell. Bearsden had a gun club, is that quite... It's still got a gun club. Has it really? Yes, it does. Uh-huh. Oh, that's crazy. It's, it's well uh, hidden. You, you wouldn't know it was there. Are there lots of gun clubs in Glasgow? I was totally unaware of that. I don't think there are, but uh, I do know it came as a surprise to me when I found out that Bearsden had one. Rich people need guns. Uh, I've, I've got no idea, the fasc- especially with what's going on in America. Yeah. How, why are people fascinated by guns? Well, especially assault weapons, mm. right? Uh-huh. What is that? I've got no idea. Because you people need them to go shoot geese. And- uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's not for sport, is it? It's, it's mystifying to me. But then some people are fascinated by, by weapons. So being a member of the Bears Den Gun Club, um, he and another couple of guys, John Sim and Ian Donaldson, um, got together. Um, Sim was also an ex-policeman. Uh, he had a private gun collection, including a Russian .22 pistol. Uh, that will feature later in this story. Perhaps incredibly... With Wilson as the ringleader, the three men decided that they could rob a bank. So uh, these, well, three so far, there's 
Two of them are ex-policemen. Two ex-policemen. <laughs> who really like guns. Who are into guns. Right. Decide to rob a bank. Interesting combo. It really is. And it's just, as I say, the truth is often stranger than fiction. Yeah. Because if you wrote a Hollywood script and said, two ex-cops fascinated by guns in a country like ours in Scotland, um, they would say, no, that's not, that's that doesn't have a ring of truth to it. Yeah. But obviously it's fact, it did happen. But then, back then was, I mean, the, you said before there was there was quite a few guns kicking about, like post-war. Yeah. Was it such <clears> a, was it such a big thing then? The, like, now the handguns are banned, you've got, you know, there's so much legislation needed for guns for sport or for farming or hunting. Um, I mean, it's possible to get them, but you'd have to really, really work for it. It's not like states where you just go into a supermarket mm-hmm, and pick them up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So is it, I mean, was it, it, there wasn't as much legislation then, right? Because it was pre-Dunblane and... Yeah. I think Dunblane definitely changed things to a large extent, but they've totally clamped down now and... To get a firearm certificate is quite difficult. And, of course, there are constant checks on people with firearm certificates. Um, The police are pretty uh, quick in picking up these things now. Um, Perhaps in the 50s, uh, in the 60s, to some extent, um, things were slightly more lax. Um, But even so, the very idea of... Two ex-cops, yeah, you know, deciding to, yeah, yeah. to rob a bank it's using crazy. a gun. Yeah, no, the whole thing's crazy. Uh-huh. I was just, I was just wondering if like guns were a bit more commonplace then. That's all. I wasn't, I wasn't suggesting this was in any way normal. <laughs> no, no, no. I, I don't think it is. I don't. It could be described as normal at any point, but I think they regarded themselves as probably above suspicion, so that nobody would think, looking at them, that they. Uh, would be responsible for doing something like this. So, to some extent, um, their behaviour was maybe not the typical bank robber's behaviour. I mean, they threatened, certainly. They certainly threatened um, the staff and they could be quite brutal in their own way. But at the end of the day, um, they carried out two robberies and uh, they ended up um, getting caught after the second one. Right, so even though they were cops, they still didn't manage to outsmart other cops? Well, it was just by sheer fluke that they were caught. Oh, really? It really was just one of those absolutely amazing coincidences. <laughs> um, and I suppose it was 1969, and you know it was quite a year for rather unusual crimes. Yeah, no half, but... <laughs> Were they in a in a car with, and there was another car with two people named exactly the same thing? Oh, that was last week. So yeah. Of course, of course. Um, so, with Wilson as the, the ringleader, they also decided they needed a, a getaway driver. And I think that's where uh, young Archie McGeehee uh, came in. Um, why did they need a getaway driver? Like, none of them could drive, or...? Yeah, there were ex-cops, two of them. And they, they could drive okay, but 
I think they felt safer if somebody was to take the pressure of driving away from the bank they had chosen. And um, he knew, or his I think his parents knew, um, Wilson's family. And um, he also, I think, had some connection to the greengrocers uh, trade that Wilson had embarked upon. So he was seen as a safe pair of hands. Um <clears throat> McGeehy, um joined the, the, the gang and um, <clears throat> they went ahead and they robbed the British Linen Bank in Williamwood in Renfrewshire. That was on the 16th of July 1969. And when we think that Paddy Bean, for instance, went to Ayr, or he didn't, he went to Stradrar on the 5th of July 1969. It was quite a busy Time for the police. Yeah. Um, there was all these crimes going on. And they were all slightly different to what you'd find these days. Um, when they went to this bank in Williamwood, the method was well thought out. And um, they went to the bank dressed in smart suits. One of them in possession of the gun and the others with containers of an ammonia. This was to squirt into uh, the faces of the staff or anyone who got in their way. So they, they pulled on stocking masks over their faces. They went inside and they confronted four staff. Uh, one of the gang explaining to them, this will only take a few minutes. As long as no one does anything uh, that could be seen as silly, nobody will get hurt. One of the gang pulled the phone out of the wall as the others herded the staff into the manager's office, where all except the manager were blindfolded and bound up. The manager was then uh, forced to open the safe and left with just over £20,000. Police inquiries led to no arrests and the gang soon spent their money. How much is £20,000 like today? I think it's a multiplier of about ten. Wow, okay. So, it's so like two, be 200, yeah. 200,000 or thereabouts. So it was quite a substantial amount of money. Yeah, you could get a small flat for that. No, you yeah. could, yeah. A big flat. A big flat, yes, yeah, uh-huh. depending, yeah. yeah, that's true. I think so. So the police inquiries led to no arrests and um, they soon get rid of their money. At that point, they made the decision to do it again. Did they, did, sorry to interrupt, did they, did they spend all the money? The, the money time? was all gone. The £20,000 was all <laughs> s- spent. It was split four ways, certainly. Yeah, and, still, uh, that's a lot of money, isn't it? It's a lot of money. Um, at the same time, if you're young, like somebody like McGeeky, I, I presume, you'd buy yourself a new car or something. You could explain it. It was part of the business or whatever. Um, these were all, apart from McGeeky, they were all family men. So yeah. they had, you know, mortgages to pay. Paid off the mortgages. Paid off, paid off. <laughs> With their you stolen know. money. <laughs> That's right. I guess there wasn't money laundering, um, like, documentation and stuff to fill out in those days. I don't days. think there would be in 1969. Yeah. You could just walk in with a big wad of cash and oh, say, that's, that's it. That's crazy. So it's sorted out. So um, when they decided that they would rob a second bank, 
It turns out that McGeeky, the driver, um, it's been said, decided he wanted no part of the latest robbery. Now, that is the official story, and that is what I think is crucial to our tale. Okay. Because, um, from my information, that is not correct. Okay, and your information comes from criminals. (laughs) Very, very good source. Who was a criminal? A criminal, yeah. Yes. Okay. Yes. Um, A very likable criminal. A likable, a a lovable (laughs) rogue. That's right. (laughs) So um, I'll come back to that bit. So the other three went ahead and robbed a second bank. This was in Linwood in Renfrewshire. And they chose the 30th of December 1969. Sim had gone in and arranged an appointment to open a business account the day before on the 29th of December. Um, He arranged a further appointment saying he would return with his two business colleagues so when he came back on the 30th of December the assistant manager showed them into his office and was then threatened with a pistol to his head before being tied up and a pillow slip placed over his head. The manager was then attacked and he too was tied up and a pillow slip placed over his head as well. Three bank staff and a customer were then confronted by the gang, one of them brandishing the pistol and they, they tied up the, um, the, the, the customers and again used pillow slips over their heads. There was one customer with a baby in a pram and she was outside and... Um, but the customer was outside with the baby? She was outside. Okay. And the door was shut. So she knocked on the door, quite indignant that she wasn't getting into the well, bank. I would be too, right? And uh, so they, they let her in and then they tied let her, her in. up. Oh. Uh-huh. Because uh, if they'd left her outside, she'd have, you know, yeah, maybe right. contacted the police and said there's something wrong at the bank. But then what the baby went, I mean, what the baby went inside as well. Oh, the baby was allowed inside okay. as well. And... Um, I suppose that was 1969, so I thought of the baby be now. Um, certainly be about 40 or something. <laughs> More than 40? 1969? Well, it was 1969, so if the baby was one, let's put it that way. It would be, be, <clears throat> be 50 odd. It would be. be yeah, the baby odd. would be 50 yes, odd. Yes. So um, she was allowed in, tied up. The gang took the money from the safe and put it in a suitcase but they paused to take a black box containing silver coins. And that is what led to their capture eventually. On this occasion, they got away with £14,212. Jeez. So they sped back to Glasgow and they went to Allison Street, um, which is on the south side of Glasgow, yeah. in Govan Hill. Okay. And... Um, this was where Wilson had a flat. They parked in nearby Nidru Street uh, and a couple of hundred yards away, this was a couple of hundred yards away from Craigie Street Police Office. As they carried their haul towards Wilson's flat at 51 Allison Street um, on the second trip, they were seen by a police inspector called Inspector Hislop. Did he help them carry the 
the booty into the house. Well, he recognised um, Wilson as an ex-cop. And he, um, Hislop, and another police officer, Sellers, uh, were in a police car at the time. They had stopped in heavy traffic, and just by sheer chance, they saw Howard Wilson um, and the other two struggling to carry these cases. Um, Inspector Hislop, um, I think at that point, wondered what was in the large metal box, and he saw them go into, the, the three men go into 51 Allison Street, the entrance to the flat. Um, but at that stage, obviously, they had no idea that a bank robbery had been carried out. Yeah. So it was just curiosity. Yeah. There's my former colleague. I wonder what he's doing looking at that enormous box. It looks like it's full of money. Uh, well, I mean, that's... that's and guns. Maybe, well, that, maybe that went through their heads because... Um, because they didn't know it was there had been a, a bank robbery, um, the inspector was just intrigued, I suppose, and uh, he went to the flat. The him and Constable Sellers, they went into the close, the entrance to the the tenement, and they went to the back of the flat and looked in the window. They saw nothing. So the inspector decided he would go back to the police station. It's only a couple of hundred yards away um, for assistance. And Constable Sellers stood outside the door. As he was standing there outside Wilson's flat, Wilson appeared and um, he asked him what he was doing. And the constable told him, he was waiting for the inspector. Wilson at that point said he was going to buy himself a pint of milk at a local shop. At that point, the inspector returned along with three other officers and they met Wilson on his way back with his pint of milk. Wilson tried to bluff his way out and they asked the inspector how he was getting on because they knew each other having worked together. Um, his lot asked uh, what he was doing and uh, what was in the cases and the box that he'd um, seen uh, him and his colleagues carrying. And uh, Wilson denied having anything to do with carrying them. Um, Hislop insisted he had seen them and he said he wanted to search the flat. And Wilson was pretending he was nonchalant about the whole thing. Um, he then said, go ahead, there's nothing uh, in the flat that would interest you. But of course it was a complete bluff because of course the proceeds of the, the bank robbery were, were all there. But he told them they can just go in and have a look. Yeah. What? Why would he do that? That's so stupid. I don't know, but it, it gets they... it gets really serious because at that point um, the police went into the flat and they saw two suitcases on the living room floor. Donaldson was sitting in one of them drinking a beer and Hislop opened one of the cases and saw it was loaded with canvas bags filled with silver coins. Oh, my goodness. Um, the police wouldn't have been allowed to search it without his permission, even then, right? They wouldn't have. Um, so he could have just said, like, piss off, uh -huh. and he wouldn't have got caught. 
Well, well, I mean, they'd have been sniffing around, but, you know, they bought themselves some time. What they'd have done is the police would have just been team-handed and stood at either end of the um, the entrance and not allowed them to, to leave. God, those were the days when you had like, enough police to do stuff like that, right? I suppose that's right. I yeah. mean, I, I think eventually there was about six police officers there. Holy cows, and, like more uh, than a donut shop. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, so, so hold on a sec, right? So this crime that's happening in, as you said, Renfrew. Uh-huh. So the Renfrew cro- cops are like driving along. Oh, I see an ex-colleague of mine. Mm. think he's a bit dodge and he's carrying a large box that looks like it could be filled with something illegal. So we're going to come round, four of us, and we're just going to start like badgering this guy <laughs> until we find it. But the cops in the story last week in air. We're like, oh, hello, violent criminal that has uh-huh. huge scars all over his face from yeah. gang fights. Yeah. Let me drive you. <laughs> let me drive you to another part of air so you uh-huh. can go pick up your car. It's unbelievable. This is the same police force. Well, it's not actually the same police force. It's, it's police Scotland it's, it's now. Different, different it's, it's individual different, different, regional police forces. Yes, yeah, because this wasn't the Renfrewshire police. This was the Glasgow police. Yeah, city of Glasgow police, and at that time it was the police in the air. Who were dealing with that? I guess Glasgow police were dealing with like just a lot of shit on a general oh, <laughs> daily yeah. basis. I would imagine that attitudes were different yeah. around the country. And um, I don't think Inspector Hislop had a lot of regard for Howard Wilson for some reason. Because... Um, must have known he was dodging. He must have known he was up to something. So um, had Wilson decided... To say no, you can't search. The police would have just maintained a presence outside his house until they got a warrant from a magistrate, and then they'd have gone in. So what were they going to do with all that money? Uh, they've got all these coins. They've got all these notes. Um, you know, they, they wouldn't have been time to to flush them down the toilet or, or yeah. anything. So they, they they were stuck. So I think what happened after that. Shows how desperate Wilson was. Um, when the police found the suitcases, um, the inspector then asked uh, Wilson if he could see the metal box. He said he'd seen it being carried into the flat, and he went to to the living room. No, he was in the living room, and he left the living room to go and look for it, and in the hall. He saw Wilson standing with the Vostok .22 Russian pistol pointing it directly at his head. Wilson pulled the trigger, the gun jammed, and um, at that point, um, Wilson calmly cleared the obstruction in the gun, took aim again, and at that point, the inspector tried to knock the gun out of his hand, but a bullet hit the left side of his face and he collapsed on the floor, unable to move. He was paralysed. Oh, my God, that's uh-huh. insane. This is an ex-cop shooting a cop. Yeah. So um, he lay on the floor, unable to move, paralysed. and uh, This is the wonder cop that sniffed the crime out from a car driving past. Oh, uh-huh, it's an inspector, yeah. yeah. Who, who saw these guys and thought there was something. He yeah, was, he was right, obviously. Um, so, hearing the noise, 
one of the gang, Donaldson, came out into the hall. Having seen what had happened, he then ran out of the house. He just left. He ran away. So that left Sim as the other member of the gang, along with the, the cops that were in the place. So <clears throat> a police constable, Barnett, came out of the kitchen. And at that point, Wilson shot and killed him immediately. He was he was a goner the second he stepped out Jeez. of the kitchen into the hall. So now he's done two cops. He's done two cops. Um, another officer, the DC Mackenzie, appeared, and Wilson shot and killed him <gasps> as well. Three cops. He finished him off with a second shot to his head when oh. Mackenzie was on the ground, helpless and wounded. Um, he just finished him off. Um, Inspector Hislop was lying there, unable to do anything. And he, he saw Wilson just pull the trigger. Oh my and god! Execute that's his like colleague. a horror movie. It really is. It's a terrible situation. Uh, police constable Sellers, who had been involved with Hislop at the start, he realised what had happened, and he ran into the bathroom and radioed for help. So Wilson heard him, and he tried to batter the door open, the bathroom door open, as Sellers was contacting the. Craigie Street Police Office for backup and um, he continually called for help and he also kept the door shut so failing to get sellers Wilson went to where Inspector Hislop was lying and he put the gun to his head and pulled the trigger again so he was going to finish him off but amazingly the gun jammed a second time. Oh, wow, that's amazing. And a detective constable called Campbell came out of the living room in time to see Wilson pressing the gun against Hislop's head. Campbell ran at him and the pair of them struggled on the floor. Uh, Wilson was shouting constantly and Sim to get help, uh, to help him, but Sim didn't. He just did nothing. So Campbell eventually um, got possession of the gun and he pointed it at Wilson and Sim. Another two police officers um, answered Sellers' call for help and they rushed into the flat and the two gang members were arrested. DC Mackenzie was pronounced dead at the scene. PC Barnett died five days later in hospital. Uh, when Donaldson arrived home, officers were waiting to arrest him because they knew who he was yeah. as well. So, God, that's so shocking, isn't it? You just don't think of cops killing other cops. I mean, ex-cops. It's it's absolutely amazing your when colleagues. you think back in it. Yeah, uh, ex-colleagues. And what was he thinking about? I mean, why not just you know get twelve years for a, a bank robbery or two bank robberies? Yeah, instead of life. And um, when you consider that the. The first Bible John murder was Pat Docker in February 1968. The other two uh, that ascribed to Bible John were Jemima MacDonald in August 1969, Helen Puttock in October 1969, and in that same year we had the Howard Wilson gang holding up two banks in July and December 69, and the murder of two policemen and the attempted murder of a third in December 1969, and, of course, we had Paddy Meehan being charged with the murder of Rachel Ross in the air in July 1969. 
So, <laughs> so the two big, two two big crim- criminal activities that happened. Well, kind of three, but one was a bit rubbish. Paddy Means was a bit rubbish because he didn't actually commit the crime. So they've had these the the other two who actually were criminals, and the link between the two is. The link with all of these crimes in 1968 and 1969 is Loch Awe. Bum, bum, bum. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, you know, it's interesting, apart from Howard Wilson um, getting parole in 2002, um, he was allowed and he apparently, um, I don't know if he's still alive, but he wrote a crime novel whilst in prison. Oh, really? And it won a prize. Are you kidding? I'm not kidding. So this, like, mass murderer? (laughs) He killed two of his colleagues, ex-colleagues, and he tried to kill a third. And you can imagine the feeling against this man. Yeah. After he turned into such a monster. So he got out in 2002? He got out in 2002 on parole. And by that time he had written his crime novel, which won the Kostler, the Questler Prize, I think it was called. Was it more like his memoir? I don't know what it was. I've decided on principle not to read it because I feel that... You don't want um, any money or recognition going to somebody like that. No, you wouldn't. You wouldn't. So just to follow up with some information about what happened to the police officers, the, the police officers who died were both married... Detective Constable Mackenzie left a widow and Constable Barnett a widow and two children. Inspector Hislop, the wonder cop who dodged death miraculously twice because of the stuck gun um, and saw the crime from the road, even though it wasn't a crime. He just saw them carrying the the boxes and, and assumed that something was happening. He had parts of the bullet stuck in his neck and he ended up having to quit the police force in 1971. It's pretty shocking that somebody that took the lives of brave policemen and left their children without a father and their wives without a husband um, is potentially still alive and walking about free. I mean, he would be 84 now if he is still alive. We couldn't find out if if there was an obituary for him. So I'm going to assume maybe he is. I'll definitely be eyeing up little old men with suspicion now whenever I see them in the supermarket. If you like this podcast series, we are working on a new series. It's going to involve looking at Sheila Garvey, who Alan literally wrote the book on. So he's a super big expert and that should be really interesting. We're also going to look at Willie McRae, which was a listener suggestion. Um, and that's that's just the most crazy story if you've never heard it before. Willie McRae was found dead in a car. The police said it was a suicide, but the weapon was that he'd murdered himself. A gun was nowhere near his body. It was like metres away in a river nearby. And we'll also be looking at Robert Black, who I'm happy to say I'd never heard of before recording this podcast, and I hope I can forget about his crimes very soon now we have recorded it. We're always open to interesting suggestions, so if there's one you'd like us to look into, you can look us up on Twitter at Murder Scotland, or you can look on our website, www.murderscotland.com, and you can contact us through our email. If 
you like our podcast, then please like and share with your friends. We would love to hear your feedback and ideas on Twitter at Murder Scotland. If you'd like any more information on our sources or Alan's books, you can find us at www.murderscotland.com. Murder Scotland is written, presented and produced by Alan Nicholl. Presented, produced and edited by me, Julie Lamont. Our consulting producer is Paige Henderson. Music is called Moments by Adrian Walther. And a special thanks to Steve Garside and Miriam Watson for their unending support and patience with me and Alan. 